You're listening to Accounted For, the Canadian podcast that explores the intangibles of every career. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. Hey everyone, welcome back to Accounted For. Happy Wednesday. This is a podcast on a mission to expand your perspectives, have you question the status quo, and get you inspired to action for your own career. And I am very happy that you took the time to join in once again. And I'm happy to be back after a good two-week break, although I was sick for a full week and a half of that two-week break. But I am happy to be back to present to you with more episodes for these next coming months until my next break (laughs) and so if you are a full first-time listener uh, you might be a little confused but this podcast is kind of part of this overall platform i've built called omd ventures and the platform itself is on a mission to build utopian organizations by unlocking human potential and so if that sounds confusing to you, that is a great reason to check out the platform. So go to omdventures.com or alternatively oldmandan.com and you can learn more about the podcast as well as all the stuff that I'm doing as well. And if you are a long-time listener, please, um, I would say, support the community by signing up to the weekly newsletter. It includes everything from the weekly developments as well as the daily learning. That's something that was public that went on every Monday, but now I've decided to keep it closed just for the newsletter community. So now that's even a greater incentive for you to sign up. And if you want to somehow support the podcast so that it can help grow it further, like, I don't know, help me pay off all the all the overhead fees, then please uh, donate. And you can find all that in the stakeholder option in the website. Or alternatively, the address is omdventures.com slash stakeholder. So that's all the everyday announcements. Oh, and separately, um, I used to, well, as of like last week, I think, I had a separate YouTube channel where I had a separate vlog called The Boring Life where I went through what I would go through every week trying to create this company of mine and all the major ups and downs that I go through in this weekly episode and I decided to pause that just because I just wasn't having that much fun with it anymore but I'm thinking of combining that into a separate podcast that's much less serious than this one but more focuses around what I do every week but at the same time something more dear to my heart which is kind of the fact that I'm a minority it's not going to be anything like some race-based thing but just using the concept of being a minority wherever you are in whatever field and whatever nature and using that as a conversation topic to talk about things and it might be a solo thing that I do by myself I might have a guest on where I just use it as a reason to just catch up with a dear friend but yeah I figured especially for us Canadians in the millennial generation who are immigrants of some sort there really isn't much of a voice out there for us, at least for me as a Korean. All all the voices I hear are Koreans in LA, and I cannot relate to any of them because we just live a completely different life, in my opinion. So I thought maybe, maybe I'll just start one myself. But yeah, it'd be cool to hear back from any of you listeners if you would be interested in something like this. And if the outcry is really positive, I'll speed up the production of it. 
if the outcry is non-existent or negative, I might just maybe slow it down. But I might, I think I'll still end up just doing it just because why not? But yes, that's it. That is it um, for announcements. So today is another anonymous episode. And I experimented with a number of anonymous episodes in the past where I would get someone in various professions like at a hedge fund or management consulting and we would sit down to have a candid conversation with what these individuals would actually do in their daily lives as well as go through um, what their industries would actually be like as well and challenging the popular myths that people would have about particular industries and so by popular demand I'm constantly finding more brave souls who are looking to share what they do and what their industry is about and so today is about infrastructure investing infrastructure investing working on my and pronouncements infrastructure it's uh it's a field i've personally had a brief exposure to but it's also a place um i'm not that familiar with but i've been recommending people look into it especially when i have people coming to me about investing and they tell me oh i, I want to be an investor but they want something that's much more lower vol- volatility something in the private markets and they wanted a career that might be much more data slash excel heavy where they can be very detail oriented and so for those people i i tell them oh have you heard about infrastructure investing and i'll recommend that field to them and my initial experience and understanding was that it's like investing in hospitals and airports and solar panels renewable energy was my personal experience but i wasn't too particularly aware of the details of what it was actually like and so i grabbed the person who is an infrastructure investor themselves and had them on the podcast and so we go we do like a deep dive into how infrastructure investing actually works what that person does in a day-to-day as well as just more of just the industry trends around what this kind of field is like and so yeah if this is something that might be interesting to you then you're in luck even if you aren't, you'll still learn something about a new industry. And especially for Canadians, this will be interesting because we live in a some kind, you know, a, a, a version of a soci- very socialist type country where, you know, the government takes care of healthcare and education. But you will end up learning that private investment companies own these buildings and infrastructures. So, like, how does that work? How how is a government operating it but at the same time paying investment companies to own it and operate it themselves so these are things we'll kind of dig into as well so that might be of use to as you use to you as well so i really do hope you enjoy this anonymous podcast interview on infrastructure investing hey everyone welcome back to accounted for today is another series on the anonymous podcast and so we are going to explore the world of infrastructure investing in Canada. And so I'm first going to, as well, as you all might be aware, if you've listened to any previous infrastructure, um, sorry, anonymous episodes before, you will know that I never revealed the guest's name. So I'll just say, hello, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks. <laughs> What's my name? Uh, so previously, I, I used to call all my anonymous guests Min because that's a gender-neutral Korean name. <laughs> so I can call you Min if that if that works. But I've also learned that I, I never really end up referring to 
them as men ever. So, but I'll just introduce you as men. And so the first question I, I have for you uh, before we even go into infrastructure investing is the years of tenure you've had in this field. So over under on the three-year mark. And for the guests, I use three years because I found that when people stay in a field for more than three years, they tend to stay for quite a while. And when people stay under three years, they tend to still have the flexibility to leave to something completely different. So right now I am under three years. All right. Are you are you getting close to the three-year mark or you, do you think you're going <laughs> to bounce? <laughs> getting close. You know, I'm keeping, keeping my options open, but uh, I'm not going to commit to anything yet. But yeah, getting close to the three-year mark. Okay, okay. And so for our listeners who may not be familiar with what infrastructure investing is, can you explain that to the audience, you know, in, in a way that you would maybe even explain it to your parents in like a very kind of easy, simplistic manner? Yeah. Um, so when I think the first thing I would do is define what infrastructure is. Excellent. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when people hear the word infrastructure, you know, you, they might be thinking of these huge kind of projects with the government where they might think of like highways, um, hospitals, schools, that kind of thing. But lately infrastructure uh, has kind of like expanded um, beyond uh, the traditional infrastructure kind of boundaries and has moved on to include you know, a lot of power projects, like a lot of renewable energy now falls under infrastructure. And in fact, like the company that I used to work for only does um, renewable energy. Um, and uh, also renewable energy, there's also this new space that's kind of popping up now called digital infrastructure because uh, digital and data and all that kind of stuff has been like such a big part of our lives. Like I can't imagine a life where, you know, internet is not accessible to most people. Like, you know, what, what, what are people going to do? Like, how are people going to do their jobs if they're not like connected to the web? And so uh, lately, digital infrastructure is starting to be grouped into the infrastructure space. And so asset-wise, those are like probably the, the bigger categories of assets that falls into infrastructure. And um, so if I have to talk about what infrastructure investing is, you know, those are the assets that I'll include. And, uh, the next thing to think about would be uh, the kind of economics of, of the assets. Like infrastructure investments usually are, are long-term kind of investments that provide like a steady return. They're not very risky. So the target IRR there um, is not very high. Like most of the infrastructure investing only goes for a very low IRR in the, the maybe like a five to six percent kind of mark all the way up to well, when you go into double digit, you're getting into like the risky infrastructure uh, type of investments, which we call core plus. Mm. Um, core being like the traditional stuff that I talked about in the beginning, and the plus being like uh, like the, the additional stuff that you're tacking on. So renewable energy is falling into the core now, and the digital stuff is kind of like what I would put in the in the core plus uh, space. So uh, yeah, and and all in all, like that's kind of how we describe what infrastructure investing is, and it's kind of helping the clients put money into these assets to generate a long-term stable return. Like they're not out here looking for it to double their money. They just want to make sure the money is kind of growing a little bit more than inflation and keeping the value. Got it. Yeah. And so you, I think um, you mentioned IRR. So that stands for internal rate of return for our non-financy uh, listeners. <laughs> and so if, if we could kind of paint the pictures, I think if we were to give a range, so infrastructure, you said, you know, 
if it was a core investment. So in, I guess now it's a bit of renewable energy, but I guess that's also, there's probably some renewable energy that's in, still in the core or plus, but I guess then the main chunk would be things like, um, like highways and I don't know, what else would be there, like toll roads or I guess toll hospitals. Roads. Toll roads is, if you think about how toll roads work, like it kind of falls outside of the core because toll roads, the way you make money is if people pay to go on your toll roads, like, if you're, if you're in the Toronto area, like think of the Highway 407. It's not a very stable kind of return because, you know, if the econ- economy goes really bad, people are going to like cut back on how much they go on the 407 because like, that might be like an, uh, a luxury kind of spend to, to the lower income kind of family. Mm. And uh, so you return in that sense, it's still kind of subject to the economic cycle. And if you think about infrastructure assets, most of them are not really subject to economic cycles, like, uh, because you're getting money from generally one uh, counterparty, and it's usually, uh, like, think of a solar farm, like, you don't collect revenue based on how much electricity each of the individual households spend, you collect money from um, the, 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 the grid provider who you're selling the power to, and um, that's, uh, that's one counterparty, and it's they're going to pay you regardless of whether the economy is going good or bad because they sign a contract with you to provide that income. And that's kind of like the, the backbone of, of infrastructure investments is a lot of stuff is contracted and um, you're not really subject to a lot of revenue fluctuations. Oh, okay. And so if, if you can, um, if I'm thinking about the core investments then, so, you know, solar is still part of, I guess, the renewable section, right? And then what would, what would be, what are the kind of the major investment types inside the core stuff? Uh, so the core stuff is generally a lot of very public assets like hospitals mm. uh, would be a core infrastructure, schools, uh, even libraries. These are like uh, these are assets that you know, they provide general public good for everybody, and in turn, you know, the government usually pay you some sort of money to operate these assets and. Um, that's so. That's where they, they make money from is, is is to just to keep the asset operating at a good condition and to provide public good, and the government will pay will pay you money as long as you keep it up. Oh, okay. So I I always thought the government actually owned a lot of these. So then it's a infrastructure investment company that owns these assets and actually operates, and then they get a fee from the government that pays them to Correct. maintain it. So the in the industry there's a term called P three, and that stands for public private partnerships. And so usually the government would have like a mandate to go out there to, to build a new hospitals to, to provide you know, services to, to a new area or, or something like that. And um, to build that new hospital, the government is, is usually going to go out to the private market and uh, have like an RFP and then everybody would bid on it and see who can, I guess, generally vote for who can provide it at, at the best cost. And, uh, but on top of that, they got to they got to also make sure that the, the, the private company building it is not going to you know, fail halfway and they have a good um, good, good group of, of parties going in, bidding into this asset to, to construct and to operate. Um, and yeah, so they would bid into it and the government would essentially sign this agreement with this uh, consortium of partnerships saying that, you know, if you build it, then the design build guy is going to get paid. And then after you construct the asset, the design build guys go, go away after they built the asset and then you know the the financial the equity provider and the operator of the asset comes in and operate the asset for the for the remaining term of the contract which you know it could be anywhere from like 20 to like four years 
Um, and for the entire time, they just have to maintain it and keep the asset in good shape. And the government will pay them like every month or quarter, depending on the contract. And usually every month, because they need to have all the cash flow to operate the asset. And, um, and then at the end, a lot of times there is something called a handbag in the traditional uh, infrastructure. And in the handbag uh, is, uh, you know, you kind of, maybe you have to do a little bit of refurb to bring the asset back to like a good condition. And then you hand the asset back to the government after 40 years. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So they're signing really long-term contracts from the get-go. Yeah. Like they, they build it and then they go, okay, here's a 10, 20, 40 year contract. Yeah. And so run with it and so that's i guess how you have the stability like you know literally that unless the cut co- i guess the country doesn't do well as yeah, a whole exactly. you'll get paid yeah exactly and like these these government like this board or provincial government or any kind of government body usually have like a pretty high credit rating like the like a double a kind of area and uh, and that's why a lot of uh infrastructure projects are actually very highly levered like um you could have up to like 80% of, of the project value that's uh, that's uh, that's funded by debt. And that's why, and that's kind of what you need to bring the returns up because if you just look at an unlevered project, most of the time you won't be able to get up to like the, the five to 6% return range that I'm talking about, um, let alone like the higher like single digits. And so you have to really lever the project up um, and uh, to, to, to generate a reasonable return for the equity right right and i guess if i were to try to um, simplify for people who might not be familiar with all these investing terms it's yeah so when you lever it up you, you're injecting with a lot of debt and the re- it's like i guess like the simple definition or example would be like when people buy a house right they might just put in the cash their equity component as like a down payment and Correct. then the mortgage being the levered position and if you sell the house after it you know fingers crossed doubled then <laughs> um that whole value is a huge gain on the actual initial equity position you would have had, which was your down payment. And you can use the rest to pay off the mortgage or whatnot, but that leverage allowed you to benefit from that uh, return. Correct. And that's what makes infrastructure investment like so attractive, right? Because, you know, if you think about the project, it's relatively low risk because your new profile is kind of almost guaranteed. And so you would always, generally always have enough money to, to pay down the debt and still have some money left to pay out to, to investors. And uh, that's why, you know, they're willing to fund equity to only asking for like 6% of return um, and, and, and not take on any extra risks. Yeah. And in, in an environment where your risk-free rate is, you know, maybe sometimes even 0% for some countries, uh, but even to as maybe like even 2%, the 6% becomes quite attractive when you think about, oh, it's very stable, just like yeah. a bond is, because it's practically it's still your gov- the government is still the main client, especially yeah. in a very kind of more socialist style economy like in Canada. Exactly, like right now, like the yields are very low, like they're down to like the, the mid twos probably. You know? mm. And yeah, someone comes and be like, okay, you can put in your money and you're almost guaranteed to earn like a five six percent return. Like, yeah, why not? Right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I can earn that return for like 30, 40 years. Like, right. Not just earning it for a few years, like a bond. Yeah, and. So I forgot to mention this caveat, but for the listeners who are still listening, this is not an investment recommendation podcast. It's, <laughs> a, it's an informational podcast. So make your decisions at your own, um, you know, peril or success, whichever. But this is purely informational. So don't think we are recommending anything. Uh, although Correct. it could be that I, I consider it to be a recommendation for me <laughs> as I learn about this field. 
and so, so then yeah like i think if i think about the irrs of other asset classes like infrastructure being one asset class um i think if i think back to the public equity world i think even getting like 10 10 to 15 percent was is still considered like a very good fund yeah. manager in the public equity world yeah. and if you have you know some people get 20 25 percent like those people are all-stars yeah. um and then i think about the private equity world even private equity world when uh, we think strictly about like leverage leveraged buyouts of private businesses they're looking at like 15 percent irrs most of the times it Ven- would be pretty low for a private equity no i thought they would get up to like the high teens to even over 20. yeah so some will be i think so i think it ranges from 15 to like 25. Yeah. um maybe some will go up to like maybe 40 if they're like really good maybe like vista partners or something mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. those guys would be very good and i think venture capital you can have that huge swing up to yeah. <laughs> like, like 10 times or zero <laughs> yeah exactly, exactly i think i think if you get like 15 to 25 percent like you're still considered pretty good um but it's re- it's really rare to have that even even in canada that's what i that's what i've learned um from my own podcast interviews with other venture capitalists Correct. so do, do you find though that because like that um people consider infrastructure to not be as attractive because the irr is seems lower than the other asset classes like traditional private equity public equity and i think like if, if, you, if you talk to a regular joe today about getting a six percent return they'll look at you know the market in the last like few years and be like if i just buy into like an etf i would have generated like over 10 percent return and then they would be like no i don't i don't think six percent is an attractive return but um and that's why uh most of the clients in infrastructure funds are not um, regular Joe's out on the street. Um, you know, pension funds is, is one type of fund that would really, uh, or any sort of institutional uh, funds would be interested in these type of uh, returns for long term to protect their asset value to make sure that they can still um, provide um, you know cash flow for for their for the, the fund beneficiaries whenever they need. The institutional would be a big type of client or um, high net worth who has a lot of money and they're not looking to double the money anymore they're just looking to protect their their net worth and that is another type of uh, investors that are interested in these type of returns and so naturally they'll be looking at infrastructure as part of the portfolio got it and when so when we talk about the actual deals where you actually um you know i think we got we're kind of getting an idea of okay so usually when you have these assets you have one giant uh client the government or an electricity grid provider who buys your energy my so it's funny i i actually interviewed uh back when i was looking at different investment opportunities i was i was i interviewed with an infrastructure fund (laughs) before and that's where I also got accustomed to these terms of brownfield and greenfield projects. Um, could you care to explain that a little more to our audience and how, what's the kind of break um, split between brownfield and greenfield projects usually? Sure. Um, so if you think about projects, say uh, a solar farm, for example, you can either buy a solar farm before the project has even started construction, uh, or you can buy, you know, after they've built everything and then uh, the solar farm is up and running, and all you're doing is buying pretty much a stream of cash flow for the next 20 years. And so uh, the term brownfield means that, you know, the grass has already kind of been dug and like, so it's not green anymore, it's now brown. And so brownfield generally refers to projects that are up and operating or maybe halfway through construction, I I guess it would still be considered brownfield. Um, 
and Greenfield would refer to a project that has you know, has not dug ground yet. Um, it, it, so you're taking on construction risk in the, in the Greenfield project and sometimes even development risk. But in the Brownfield project, you're taking on less risk and to kind of just buying that certain cash flow going forward. And uh, that's the difference between two terms. And so the returns that you're looking for in these projects because of the additional risk that you're taking on would generally be different. And uh, But funny thing down in the States is that you know, that there's so many capital chasing infrastructure that uh, if you look at a uh, brownfield solar project versus a greenfield solar project down there, the return, the, the, the premium over, uh, the premium of paid to the greenfield is actually not that much higher. Like people are paying pretty much, assuming like very little construction risk and thinking that, you know, they're just going to construct it as planned and we're going to get, into, uh, we're going to get that stream of cash flow afterwards. And so it's a very interesting market down there right now. And uh, it's, it's something that I personally can't justify. And so I don't think it's very smart to invest in the, the, the Greenfield project at a such a low return. Because you know, if the construction doesn't go as planned, uh, there's some sort of cost overrun, then your, your, pretty much your whole investment case could, could blow up and you don't generate that return. Mm-hmm. And so from your experience, have you seen more brownfield or greenfield investments as better like opportunities? Generally, I think Brownfield provides uh, less opportunity because you know your cash flow is fixed at that point, and there's very little upside you can get out of the Brownfield because, um, as I mentioned before, your revenue is pretty much fixed. It's contracted. So it's already been so once if once it's built, then yeah. it's already the contract's already set, and exactly. then you're buying into it. Exactly. Oh. So you, you can't really do anything to, to get more money out of with, out of it. Whereas in a greenfield, if you um, manage construction right you can and you construct the project for lower for lower cost than you initially planned then your return odds go up and you could uh, generate a very attractive return even though you're in the infrastructure space and that's um that's a a way that a lot of the smaller funds are are getting an edge over the big guys who usually buy into gigantic operating projects Mm. and so now, kind of getting into then, um, what, how would you actually do inside these infrastructure investing funds? My, so my experience has been that when I was in consulting, I I had a chance to do greenfield projects for renewable energy, and so a lot of my work was just heavy modeling, heavy Excel modeling, a lot of data, a lot of rigorous analysis on just. Um, making all these like KPIs go very specific. Like you, I was going down to you know mapping fifteen minute intervals of you know sunlight for solar panels and going through NASA data to, to try to collect and figure out okay how much wind does this geographic location get and trying to like figure out okay will it, how much energy will this wind turbine make like and trying to predict that with all these you know I think as small as five to fifteen minute increments of data. Um, and projecting that out for 30 years because that's how long we expect it to run. And subsequently, after when I was interviewing for one of these in- infrastructure funds, the interview process was also going really deep into the nitty-gritty of modeling down to the number of nuts and bolts you would actually need to build uh, like a hospital, for example. So uh, can, can you kind of like walk me through like your your kind of average week, let's say like you you're in your role and... What, what what does it look like? How What are you doing? Yeah, uh, so there are mainly two parts to, to my job in the 
infrastructure investment space. And uh, the first part is I would I would start out with the M and A part. And, you know, we were going out to look for new projects to deploy uh, the client's capital. And so in these in this aspect, I would um, generally, depending on the project, a lot of times if the if, if it's an operating asset and they're running a deal like a whole auction process, then uh, you would look at. Uh, you look at what whatever the client's providing you to get an understanding of the project, and luckily enough, we don't have to look at the uh, five-minute incremental solar data to try to forecast out the uh, the solar performance of the next twenty years. We actually uh, in the industry that everybody hires independent engineers who have access to these uh, you know really large database of solar data and a bunch of other weather data. And they would run their own model to, and then they would write a report to say, you know, at this site, at the specific location, the expected uh, solar insulation for the next like twenty years is this, and so your, uh, your your production coming out of these assets is expected to be this. And from this aspect, there's something called a P50, P90, and P99, and what those numbers mean is uh, their probability numbers. So the the independent engineers would uh, look at the, the, the weather data and say that, you know, 50% of the chance you should be able to expect to hit this production uh, level. And, um, but, you know, if you go to lending, like, you know, I think 50% of the chance I'm going to hit this production, and I don't want to lend this. Like, I'm not flipping a coin on, on whether you're going to pay me back or not. So they have something else called a P90, P99. Those are 90% and 99% chance of hitting that level of production. So maybe the lender would, would be more comfortable with that and they would lend. Um, lend towards that produ- level of production. And uh, so, yeah, um, looking at the IE report, you can generally get an understanding of what production level can be expected uh, out, of, out of that asset. And yeah, I would build a very detailed financial model because you know, we're looking, we're targeting a pretty low percentage return here. So if we you know, miss any big items, miss any big cost, then that easily blows up your investment case again. So we need to make sure that we capture you know, every revenue item to, to make sure we're paying for as high as we can for these assets. But at the same time, to make sure we capture all the costs to, to make sure we don't overpay and that we know exactly almost how much it's going to cost to run these assets. And um, so, yeah, a lot of, a lot of uh, financial modeling um, to, to build out an investment case. And um, after you model out your cash flow, you can uh, we, we do a DCF, uh, discounted cash flow valuation. And discount it all back based on the desired level of return that we think is uh, acceptable for this asset. So, like say, an operating solar, we might think that oh, a seven percent return is reasonable, or eight percent return. Then I'll you know discount it all back and see at an eight at an eight percent return, how much can we pay? And uh, given today's like competitive market, generally you won't find any eight percent return solar projects that's actually pretty high. And um, yeah, so from there on, we kind of adjust and see, uh, adjust the discount rate and see if, if we can get to uh, a return we're comfortable enough that our client is, 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 is still going to be happy with. And uh, that's kind of how we would value uh, uh, a solar project, for example. And uh, from there on, um, we prepare, I would prepare like some sort of investment um, presentation to show it to our investment committee and get their buy-in. And then from there on, we would submit the bid and so on and so on. And uh, so from the investment aspect, that's uh, what I would usually do on a weekly basis if I'm on a deal. And the second part of my job, as I mentioned before, is the asset management part. So uh, 
my company has is like we 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 own a bunch of investments that are already built out and are in operations. So we're in that twenty year period where we're just trying to build out of cash flow. <laughs> and um, so from that sense, we have to make sure that it's operating properly uh, and that um, we 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 keep a financial model of what our expectations of cash flow is, and we constantly update it with actuals every quarter to make sure we're performing according to plan and. Uh, me working in an investment firm, we need to always know, you know, what's the value of each of our individual assets. So uh, by updating these models, we constantly update the valuation of the assets, and uh, that's what we get paid a fee on. And so I have to make sure I keep the valuation up and going, and, uh, and talk to the ops guys, like operations guys. We have some operations guys in house who manage the assets, and talk to them to make sure that I understand all the issues that's going on at these assets to, to keep a keen understanding of what it is to report back to our clients um, and that is the asset, asset management side of things okay and so touch, touching on the asset management side so you have separate operations managers who are more i guess on site and they operate i guess they talk with the managers who also run like a hospital and then they get like, i guess they collect the feedback they get all the kpis and then they transfer that to you and tell you, okay, this is how this hospital is operating, per Co- se. Correct. Uh, we generally, uh, depending on the type of company, some companies have their in-house operating teams, like they would uh, even, they would be the, the, the operating staff at the hospital might be on the payroll. Maybe not a hospital, that's pretty detailed, but um, say a solar farm, maybe the, the operators at the solar farm would be on the, the investment firm's payroll, but um, the company that I work at, we take a more high-level approach and we would we have some ops guys who manage the process, but they but our company pays these uh, operation and maintenance operators as a third party company to operate the assets. So uh, our ops guys kind of just manage how they're operating the assets and kind of get a good understanding to to liaise back to the investment team, you know, what's happening with these assets and so on. Mm, okay, and so when when you're actually structuring the uh, the funds inside this investment company that you're working at, is it uh, a separate singular fund per asset or is it uh, a fund that has maybe three or four different infrastructure assets in it? Generally, the way my firm does it is uh, the car, the, 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 either the, the high net worth or the institutions, they would say that, oh, I want to invest 20% of, of my fund with the company into infrastructure. And then, so that fund just goes towards an infrastructure arm. And then from there on, they don't really get to pick Mm-hmm. which uh, specific assets they invest into. And because of that, our firm focuses a lot on uh, concentrations. We don't want to start buying a whole bunch of solar assets because then the institutionals or the high net worth will look at a portfolio and be like, oh, I'm just buying a solar farm because I don't want to take on so much risk to, to the weather. Like what if all of a sudden uh, it, the world gets really cloudy and then, <laughs> then I'm going to lose all my money. So they don't like seeing uh, a lot of concentrated type of asset types. So we try to spread our investment across all of the different kinds of uh, infrastructure assets that we can see to keep a diversified portfolio, even just within our, our infrastructure arm. Mm, okay. And I actually had a great, what I consider to be a great follow-up question, but it's kind of blanking on me. You might come back to it. Um, <laughs> but something else that also like, triggered it is the, the kind of like deals that are happening because it seems that you know you have singular big clients. It doesn't. I can only imagine that the deals are very infrequent. Like how many? 
how often does the government start to build or decide to build another hospital, another school, or you know, play, pave another highway? How how frequent do these things come out, and what what are the big, I guess, driving factors behind your deals? For the traditional infrastructure type of investments, uh, most of the time we don't really have an edge bidding into the the RFP process. Say when the government decides to build a hospital, RFP being request for oh, sorry, proposal. Request for proposal. So that's when they first you know have a mandate to go out and build a hospital. Then they run the process to see to, to get a bunch of proposals to build it, and they'll select which which party to go with. Oh, okay. From that sense, we don't really usually have an edge because most of the time the construction companies. They have their in, uh, internal pool of capital to just bid straight into into the construction process, so they don't want to have to you know share that return with with uh, the financial providers like us, and so we don't really have a lot of chance at the uh, at the those type of investments. The when we look at the core infrastructure investments, most of the time we would be buying into an operating one where the the construction company has built it up and. But they don't want to wait 20 years to, to get their, their money back. So they want they want to sell it right now, and so they would uh, run the sale process after they've built it up and operated for a couple of years, and that's usually when we would go in and look at it and see if we can build an investment case around it. I see. So then that's the greenfield versus brownfield. Correct. Right. But whereas for uh, a lot of solar, say uh, renewable energy kind of investments, um, a lot of the, the the constructors they don't really they're not as they're not as big as the core infrastructure kind of construction companies, um, and so they don't usually have the capital to, to build up the project. They might develop it, they might gather all the all the solar data and, and build build a whole investment case, but they don't necessarily have the capital to move forward with that investment case. And so, through relationships and, and, and maybe uh, auction processes, we would try to get into um, these kind of projects and help provide them the capital to build it out. Size okay. Do you, is it? Do you think it's because the industry is still young, younger than the core side that so these solar construction companies just don't have the capital at the moment because it's not as obvious or not as proven out? Uh, yeah, that and uh, they're just. They're just they're, I think the industry is just less consolidated. There's a bunch of guys out there who are who, who are trying to build solar, and um, they're mo- they don't actually have a lot of construction. They don't have any construction companies that just go out and build solar farms. Most of the time, they have developers who go out and try to develop a new project and find find a spot to put down the, the panels, and and then they they would get all the independent engineering reports and then build out a whole investment case. So they develop the project, and then from there on, um, from just selecting the right site and maybe signing a contract with the with the grid provider. And then from there, they would just sell that right to build it there to uh, a financial provider, and then the financial provider would, you know, uh, buy into the project and then start um, finding the panel providers and then selecting a whole bunch of uh, construction guys to, to do the project and move on from there. So there aren't actually like construction companies who just go out there and build solar. Whereas for hospitals and like highways, like we have actual construction firms out there who focus on these type of projects and. Um, they, they are just much bigger because these projects are usually much bigger and uh, they don't necessarily just construct you know, these type of projects, they might build other stuff too. Mm. And so when you're actually bidding, whether it's a brownfield where it's already in operations and other infrastructure funds competing with you will put in a bid saying, okay, we want to buy this whole thing out. Or even if it's a greenfield, let's say re- renewable energy type project where you want to finance 
the construction as well as and then own the solar farm or the wind wind farm what what becomes the edge then is it like is it just a, a very relationship edge or is it the do you have more an internal ability to have better ops people to squeeze things out um and that's why I would, that brings back brings me back to the point earlier of why I gave the returns here so low is because it gets so competitive in this space and like over the past maybe five to ten years there has been a lot of capital chasing these type of investments even and in Canada even in Canada Canada is very very competitive and um, to, to 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 be one of the winners in these projects like you don't really have an edge on, on say revenue because you know depends like for solar farm for example like there's nothing, not a whole lot you can do to extract more power from the, from the, from the sunlight. If, if it shines, then you generate power. If it doesn't, then it doesn't. And so, um, in an operating project, you would realize that um, most of the time, the winning factor is how low of a return you're willing to accept. And uh, that's why, with more and more capital chasing these type of projects, the the return level that people are willing to pay just keeps going down and down because they're like, okay, um, we'll just take a five percent because. We, uh, we think historically the, the sunlight has, has been pretty reliable and we're just going to take a chance on it and, and deploy some more capital in this type of return. And whereas if you go with a brownfield project, if you have a relationship with the developer, they might not necessarily run an auction process and ask everybody out there for, for, for a bid. And so with existing relationships, a lot of time you can, um, you can find these type of one-off uh, good investment opportunities for your clients. Uh, but so be, that being the case, there isn't a whole lot of deals that uh, infrastructure guys usually go for. Um, I think my firm maybe maybe would execute on three to four deals in a whole year, and that's all. And um, you know, we think it's more important to look for good opportunities than to just blindly deploy a client's pot capital at at these like low returns and just try to earn fees off them because we don't think that's a that's a Good business practice. Mm-hmm. And so then, when you're going through these opportunities, is it that they just pop up like a banker brings you these deals, and then you just go through the model and see, okay, well, it just doesn't seem as obvious, and you just decide to pass? Is it as simple as that? Yeah, uh, a lot of deals come from bankers as, uh, as, the, as the construction guys build up the project and they need to sell, they'll go to the investment bankers, and then the bankers will reach out to funds like us to be like, oh, here's an asset coming up for sale, let me know if you're interested. And then, yeah, we run my initial, uh, there's usually two rounds in these type of investments and that's in the auction process. Um, the first round is just to just give you like uh, a little bit of the financial information and then we model it out using that and see um, see what kind of price you can bid for. Uh, and the price really at that level is just decide, depending on you know, how low of a return you're willing to accept because the, the lower the return you're willing to accept, the, the lower your discount rate is when you discount all that 20 years of cash flow and the lower the discount rate, the, the higher your NPV is today. And so generally on that stage, um, in an auction process, you don't have a whole lot of edge. And then you move into the next stage, that round two is where they open up a new whole data room with a bunch of uh, historical information on the assets, uh, say their financials and their cost structures, uh, what they've been spending on, and uh, the CapEx, uh, capital expenditures that they've been spending on to maintain these assets. And um, from there, you know, you build a maybe a slightly more detailed model and see where you can adjust and try to extract more value. And then, yeah, after the second round, they usually select the winner and they get to take the asset. Gotcha. 
And so once you actually invest in it and you've spent all this time and as you mentioned, there isn't a whole lot of an edge that you have, but you, you want it, you got the deal. How often or how rare is it for the asset to just implode, just not work out? Uh, historically, like maybe like five, five, ten years ago, it's a lot more because that's when solar farms first started popping out. Oh, so I'm it, still on the renewable energy kind of right. space uh, because that's generally where most of the deals happen these days. Um, in that in that space, like yeah, like ten years ago, it caught, solar panels cost us so much. Nobody is really certain how um, how much it's going to cost to build a solar farm. And uh, so back then, you have a lot of people just uh, bidding into these uh, uh, greenfield projects, trying to build it out, and they realize oh, it costs too much, and we, we don't have the capital to finish the project, and then they have to abandon it. And like there was, there were a lot more back then. Uh, nowadays, um, it's a lot more stable. Generally, uh, the panel panel costs in the past five ten years have come down so much; it's like a fraction of the price, like under ten percent of what it was like ten years ago. Mm. And uh, so the the cost to build projects come down a lot. And uh, people know how they do them now because they've been doing it for a while. And so the construction risk generally is a lot lower. And so the the really main risk here is is the solar uh, insulation level, like how much sun is shining onto your panels. And um, with the advanced modeling and analytics capability that we have these days, that risk is also a lot lower. You don't usually see projects performing so poorly because they have had like so many years of uh, weather data. And, Generally, they're pretty good at, at, at modeling out uh, what production level you're going to get. Um, you would think 50% chance is like pretty low, but um, most of the time, the project would actually perform to, to around the B50 level. And uh, yeah, so uh, the chance of a project just really blowing up in your face is not very high these days. And um, yeah, I think they're very, very stable. So I, I guess like even for core assets, uh, where it's not even so for example like solar it's weather dependent but you have other ones that if it's just complete government paying dependent you would literally need the government to collapse to for the product to die or I'd, yeah 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 pretty much <laughs> like you would get otherwise you're just getting a fixed check every single month and um, maybe some big uh, I, I personally don't look too much into the core uh, infrastructure space and I haven't I don't have a whole lot of experience in it but uh, generally, the investments wouldn't be too bad in those space either, mm. at least from what I've seen. Got it. And so now when we look at the actual industry as a whole, it from my outlook, I, I, I kind of see it as two different buckets where you have the pension funds that you mentioned previously, like the Canadian Pension Plan Investment Board, CPPIB, and the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, like OTPP, those two being the big infrastructure players. And there's also like smaller pension funds like um, the Health Ontario Pension Plan and like the BC IMC Pension Plans. And then there's the independence bucket, which is like, I think, keep, I would even put Brookfield inside there, even though they're massive. But Brookfield, Connor Clark and Lund, CBRE Caledon, these more investment uh, investment shops that are not pension backed. Like that's how I saw, I would kind of categorize these two buckets of infrastructure companies. But how how would you characterize it? Is it a different way that the insiders look at it? Um, no, I think um, generally it's split up by either size or the type of investments we we go for. Like we have their their companies out there who only chase certain types of assets. Um, but I think 
as I mentioned before, the, the space getting so competitive, I think there was times that less and less, that most people would just kind of go for all kinds of infrastructure investments, whether it be uh, the core or the core plus, like people would just buy everything because they need to deploy capital, right? You can't just have the client commit some money to you and you never deploy it, then it gets it gets problematic. They would want to pull, pull their money out. And um, so yeah, there's the type of assets which is less done. So it's more so split up by size. Um, some of the larger uh, kind of projects, like uh, hospitals or like probably four seven, that kind of projects is uh, requires a lot, will cost a lot of money. I think four seven is like two billion or something like that. And um, a lot of the smaller guys they can't really buy into those because maybe they they can they can find the capital to fund it, but then then their whole their whole fund turns into just owning the four seven, and that doesn't make any sense. Um, when people buy into infrastructure investments, they're looking for stability, and so diversification within an infrastructure fund is uh, very desired. And so they like to see it within an infrastructure fund that they're invested across a diversified portfolio of infrastructure assets. So you have some money in, in, in energy and power, so that have some energy in the traditional stuff like schools, hospitals, and then maybe if they are uh, open to it, have some in their core space where maybe some of the digital digital assets would fall into the core plus space and they might be interested in that too right and and the digital assets are they things like smart cities is that part of that or um, to, it, it eventually will depending on how the smart cities move forward but to, to, like nowadays today the digital space is mostly data centers and fiber networks i think i think that was like a fiber optic uh, internet networks and those are the main uh, main assets in this category right now they're very investable um, there's also stuff like telecom towers, um, but the, those are actually mostly bought up by, the that industry is very consolidated. And so, um, we have very few investment opportunities in the telecom power space, but now there's a lot of data centers are popping up left, right, and center. And these are actually pretty stable because if you think about it, you know, the data needs is only forever growing, uh, and people will need to find somewhere to store these data. And uh, as the companies move towards, you know, cloud-based applications and the whole internet of things start growing, there's only more and more data that people need. And so data center is a, is a good uh, good space to be in. And so is the, the fiber optic network uh, space because with all these data needs, you need fast ways to transmit these data. So you need a good fiber optic network to do that. Mm. Yeah, I, I think I've seen like real estate investment funds go into the data centers as well. Is that something you guys compete each other yeah that's what we call it core plus and that that's almost like core plus plus because you're getting like you're starting to venture really far out of the 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 traditional infrastructure space and uh, but if you think about it i I think these assets still have infrastructure investment type of characteristics like they're very real assets they're long term like they doesn't actually be around for a long time the contracts themselves might be shorter term because you're you're signing up with individual companies who you know they're probably not like a 20-year contract with a data center but you know it's reasonably expectable that in say 10 in the 10-year contract at the end of the 10-year contract they're still, still going to need data and if that company doesn't need it i would think that another company will probably need it so a very strategically located data center is, uh, is very has a lot of uh, same characteristics as an infrastructure type of investments but um, yeah the real estate firms are also looking at it because some data centers out there they're they're really just a box. You're just providing a box for people to 
to, to, to build out their whole um, data center hardware. So they don't necessarily, it's not a turnkey kind of data center. Like people can't just be like, I need a data center and you provide the data center and run it for them. This one is more like, here's a, here's a good location with like all the networking networking equipment provided, but you have to supply your own mm. um, hardware to, to run the data center there. Got it. And so kind of t- switching gears to your experience uh, being inside this infrastructure investments field, what what are some kind of myths that you want to bust? Like what are kind of some assumptions that your friends have of what you do that are just actually very far from the truth? Are there any? Uh, I think the biggest one is uh, probably the whole traditional infrastructure, thinking that that's the whole infrastructure space. But like, when I tell people I'm in infrastructure investing, they're like, oh, so you invest in highways and, and schools. But actually, I work very little with these traditional assets. As in, Even though I'm in the infrastructure space, I only mostly work with uh, renewable energy assets just because of how much that space has grown in the past uh, few years. So my focus is on power. And people, a lot of people don't realize that power falls under the infrastructure space. And so I guess that's uh, probably one of the, the bigger, bigger myths. Um, other than that, um, I don't think there are too many other myths like investment, investing is as people imagine it to be. It's a very stable type of investment. Like you don't got exciting stuff where we can double our money. Like we're just trying to look for a good way to, to keep the value of money and grow it by a little bit more than what you can just putting it into the public markets or into a bond. That's kind of the whole premise of the infrastructure investing. Yeah, like ni- nice and boring, right? Yeah, nice and boring. And Just like uh, Dan's podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. Good one. <laughs> true. I, I am ver- I'm very famous for ha- uh, having a very boring life amongst my friends. <laughs> but And so, you know, that's that can be considered the uh, unsexy aspect of the job. But for you personally, what, what about the job do you... Um, actually interests you and like excites you and counter to that what about the job sometimes frustrates you I find that you know learning like before I joined the infrastructure space I didn't know anything about you know, how these hospitals and schools run so or, or even airports it was actually one of some of the deals that I looked at um, and it was very interesting reading the contracts behind these P3 partnerships and kind of understanding how each party is passing risk onto the next one. And so um, the, the, con- the contractual aspect of it was very interesting to me when I first started. Can you give me an example of like a specific moment where you may have thought, oh, this is a very interesting risk pass-off? Uh, the, if, if, for example, I'm going to talk about an airport project. So okay. in airport projects, um, the risk, so we were buying into the project as, a, as an equity provider. It's already, it was already constructed and it was operating. And uh, so you would think that, oh, you're taking on the operating risk. And if it costs you more money, then um, you're gonna lose your investments. But actually all of the operating risk is passed on to the operator. If, if they don't operate according to the initial case, um, we actually just pay them a fixed fee. We don't really even look at how much they spend. And if it costs them more than the fee to, 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 to maintain the, airports then they're going to have to absorb the cost so as an equity provider i don't take on any operating risks and my, my revenue risk is very minimal because i'm collecting money from the government so i'm collecting a fixed amount of money i'm paying fixed money there's almost no no chance that i would i would really lose my money other than and in that and in that project the only risk that was really there is uh, at the end of the project uh, there was that we we have we have 
rehabilitation. This that I talked about earlier, where you have to hand back the assets and you have to bring it back to a certain uh, operating uh, standard. And there was only really that risk, and uh, even that half of that was still passed on to the, the, the operator. And we only maintained very minimal amount of risk. And I was looking at the project, and I'm like, I want to put some money in this. <laughs> I want to earn the, 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 that six percent of return in the next like, for the next forty years for free. Like I would borrow money and put all of that whole money into this. And uh, that was that was that was kind of an interesting moment for me. And that was uh, when I first started learning about the traditional assets. Uh, because uh, as I mentioned, I started out in the power space, so I only I knew a lot about the, the solar and the wind and all of that renewable energy power um, type of assets, but I knew nothing about the traditional. And that was a really interesting um, learning moment for me. And I thought it was really cool. And outside of that, um, I think I really the part of the job that I enjoy a lot is uh, you know a new project coming up, and there's these information that's available, and you're just reading as much as you can about these uh, these data or information provided by the investment banker or the client and just uh, do your best to come up with evaluation and learning everything you can about these projects because if you compare it to say uh, uh, venture capital you know, they don't they don't really need, they're never going to dive deep into the nitty-gritty of like, maybe like how much cost you're spending and, um, and they, they don't generally know that uh, every project as well as, uh, as we would and we're here diving deep into details and I like to have that feeling where I'm everything about uh, one project, how to dive deep, and um, that's one aspect that I really enjoy about, about this job, just going deep and uh, trying to model every cash going in and out of the project and coming up with as good of a price as I can for that project. Yeah, and I can only imagine that you actually gain an appreciation for these infrastructure assets when you see them. Like. It, I, I can only imagine that you know so much more about how airports might actually be operating yeah. compared to a regular person who's just waiting for their baggage at the Air Canada line thinking, God, why? if I ran an airport, it wouldn't be like this. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it, it was also really cool to, I actually got to visit some of, when I was in the power space, I got to visit some of these renewable energy sites. Like I climbed onto the top of a wind turbine. <laughs> so that was really fun. Uh, for people who are not afraid of heights, <laughs> uh, if you're afraid of heights, you'd be really scared because you're like 100 meters straight up into the air, standing on top of a wind turbine. The wind turbine stopped, so it's not spinning, so it's not going to hit you in the face, but uh, you're, you're just on a box suspended really high into the air, supported by this one gigantic pole underneath it. It's a really nice view, I'll tell you that. <laughs> And so then what, what about the job? Uh, like, you know, you talked about how you love the nitty-gritty aspect, the ability to have more certainty over what you're actually investing in. And I guess that translates into the stability of the actual return profile. But what about it uh, frustrates you or you find not as appealing sometimes? The competitive part of the market with so many capital chasing these projects, as I mentioned before, like the return bubbles are driven like super low. And uh, you're almost like sometimes you would work. I work really hard on these projects, and then at the end you find out that you lost because some other crazy guy out there is willing to accept a five percent return, and they just outbid you because they put in a lower discount rate, and then all of those hard work that you put in kind of you know, went down the drain. You didn't get anything. You didn't get the executed deal, and uh, you have nothing to show for it. And it, it, sometimes it could be discouraging. It's like a, it's like a waste of time almost. You know, waste of like a week or two working so hard on learning everything about the project and at the end you don't get it. Um, that part kind of frustrates me and uh, sometimes on these operating projects you know it's you can't find an edge because everything's so contracted and so 
a little bit lack of the creativity part, I would say, frustrates me. Um, personally, I, I like a bit more uh, creativity in my job. And, um, yeah, so that part could be a little frustrating, but um, I still find it very enjoyable to dive deep into these projects and learning everything about them. And there's so many different types of infrastructure investments out there. Uh, like, I didn't even know anything about the digital space until a couple months ago when I started you know, looking into it and helping, helping my firm to maybe pour the capital in that space. But before that, like, I knew nothing about it. And I feel like the infrastructure space is uh, and always growing, like, you know, just hospital schools and roads to, you know, including renewable energy. And then now that we're getting this new digital infrastructure space, uh, the space is growing bigger and bigger, and uh, I, th I find it pretty interesting to learn about how all these assets that are around you every day, and it's very real, and learning how they work, and uh, assigning some value to it. Mm -hmm. And how, what are your, I guess, just hours like on a deal versus no deal basis? How does that transition? Just so I can uh, also, and our listeners can get an understanding of how crushing it is when a deal doesn't go through, like how much sweat you're putting into <laughs> it's, it. It's uh, it's actually very they're very different. Like when they're when the, it depends on the firm, I guess at the end of the day, when there's no deal and you're just kind of focusing on uh, learning more about the space and uh, maintaining your assets and keeping the investors happy, then uh, you know nothing is really super pressing. And so if if you like, you can leave anytime you want, really. And as soon as you're you're keeping up with these. Uh, these tasks and you're doing everything that you need to, then there's no reason to stay there until like nine, ten o'clock every day. And so, uh, at that sense, you can really leave at five or six if you want to. So it's pretty standard nine to five on that sense. Um, but uh, if there is a deal coming, then uh, sometimes you don't get looped into these processes and these auction processes have really tight deadlines sometimes. And so you just got to stay there till whenever you finish your. Your materials because for for me and personally i have to prepare the materials show it to like my, my managing director and then there's a few turnarounds there and then once we get comfortable we got to show it to the president and then get him comfortable which might take a day and then after that all all of us together have to present it to the investment committee who has approved the the, the investment before we bid into it and so that's another layer of process so because of that like we have to get the materials ready a lot earlier than the bid deadline. And so uh, if I'm working on a project, there are nights where you have to stay there till like maybe midnight. But it doesn't happen very often because um, generally at the beginning of a new new bid, you have some time to manage. You don't have to stay that late in the beginning yet. But as it gets towards the deadline, you realize that you have to start like really pumping it out. And so um, maybe a, a few nights afterwards, you have to stay a little later. But uh, I would say the hours are a lot better than most of the other uh, investing space, uh, like venture capital, private equity, way better than investment bankers. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so if, uh, if anyone is interested in the finance space, I think, and you don't want to work crazy hours like investment banker, I would say infrastructure is a good balance of that. It's not just a standard nine to five, but at the same time, it's not going to be like, you know, if you stay there till night every single day. What what kind of character traits have you seen amongst uh, for you personally, and also just the people that you've worked with, where these are kind of key people with these kinds of character traits would be very well suited for this kind of role in this kind of investment space? I would say attention to detail is very important, given that you know we're making sure everything is right here. We can't afford to have like any sort of uh, big uh, modeling mistakes. 
because that would really affect your valuation. So uh, people in the space are usually, you know, they can look at a lot of stuff and immediately spot, you know, something's wrong. They're very, their attention to detail is very high. And so there's that. And um, as I mentioned before, it's not a very, it's not a super, super creative environment. And so um, don't expect to be in meetings all day. Like a lot of times you're kind of sitting at your desk and uh, cracking away at these new projects, learning about it, reading stuff, uh, and building financial models. So um, you have to be very comfortable like working alone a lot of time. Um, and um, yeah, so not super extroverts, <laughs> um, attention to detail. Uh, those are probably the two key traits. Like if you're willing to put in the time, I think it's, it's not rocket science, you can learn the assets. Um, and you just, uh, but to be happy doing it, I think those are the two key traits that you would, you would need. Yeah, that, sound, that sounds just about right. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's also kind of similar to the people that I, that I personally also know who are still in the infrastructure space there are very detail oriented and quite introverted people as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They, they don't, there are not a whole lot of like super loud kind of character in the infrastructure space. Everybody is nice and calm. Um, they are patient because you know, if you're impatient, it's very easy to get too discouraged by not having executed you know, a long time. And then you would not like your life. <laughs> And so then for someone like me who is a retail investor, how, how would I try, how could I invest in an infrastructure investment? How, how could I go about doing that? Is it possible? Uh, most of the time to invest into the smaller funds, it's uh, impossible because we only, uh, the funds generally target high net worth or institutional. Um, there are actually a lot of public uh, infrastructure companies that are like Brookfield, for example, you can invest in Brookfield and they hold a lot of uh, infrastructure type assets. Um, and so you can do it through that way, um, but outside of that, it's not a very accessible uh, space for regular Joes. That's very unfortunate. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Personally, I don't have many money in this space because I, I am not a high network. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I, I, I guess uh, at, at, least, at least for people like me who are uh, the younger demographic still, it's still about wealth creation, not so much wealth preservation, which I'm guessing, which is what a lot of high net worth people would want once they've had that wealth. And they're like, okay, now I'm, I want to live off this 6% uh, yield. Correct. Correct. And some of them are, are using this as like a means to, to pass money off to the next generation, right? Like they, didn't, they have no money to live for themselves. And so they just put some money in this and build, build up a, a sort of portfolio. And when their kids grow older, then they'll have um, a sizable portfolio to spend on. All right. Well, I think we're kind of hitting on the final legs of our interview. And so before we kind of close off, is there anything that uh, you wanted to share with our guests that we didn't have a chance to talk about, like that I haven't asked a question about, anything else that pops into mind about the field of infrastructure investing? Uh, nothing is coming to mind right now. I think we went into quite a bit of details of what it is and how, how, uh, how it works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm sure that I, I learned something neat and I even interviewed at infrastructure funds. So <laughs> I'm, I, I got a lot of learning out of this. Um, but yeah, so I guess, yeah, like, I think we even like, I guess there really aren't that much skeletons to talk about in this industry. It is very plain and simple. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I like things. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. That, that's probably why you'll probably stay past your three year mark then. Maybe. <laughs> I'll let you know when I hit that mark. <laughs> 
<laughs> Sounds good. All right. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your story uh, and your knowledge with myself and my listeners. Thanks for inviting. All right. Take Cheers. care. All right. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope the story was inspiring to you. It Hopefully, it also helped you expand your perspectives. Hopefully, it also made you question the default path that you might have been going on or the default beliefs you might have had. And maybe now it'll make you even think about doing something about it, doing something different maybe, challenging yourself, being courageous. Who knows? But regardless, I'm really happy that you took some time out of your day to listen to this fantastic story with my guest. And if you would like to somehow, in some way, contribute and help support the podcast and maybe even just be part of the community that I'm trying to build with the greater OMD Ventures platform, really think about being a stakeholder in the platform. And the quick way to do that is to go to my website, oldmandan.com and go to the stakeholders page. I believe it's oldmandan.com slash stakeholder. And the link is also down below. And that's how you can figure out how you can subscribe, follow to get more updates on the free content, but at the same time also donate and donate by actually just buying me a coffee. That's just how I put it. And you can buy me a coffee a month, coffee a week, or coffee every day of the year. And think about it as the way that you know, if you wanted to chat with me, you might just bring me out for coffee and buy me a coffee. Or if you wanted to bring one of my guests out to chat, you might buy them a coffee. So I'm just think of it as I'm the service that's doing that for you. So you can just pay me in coffees. <laughs> Don't worry. Uh, everything will still be free. It's just It would just really help if you would like to show your support this way so that I can use the coffee money to buy myself actual coffees and also to buy my guests actual coffees at and use the leftover money to actually grow the platform as well as even keep it operationally alive as well because it all this isn't really free and it does take a lot of time to build it as well as operate it and hopefully grow it further. So your support would be amazing if you would like to contribute. And so yeah, just check out the website, go to the stakeholders page and read the different kind of benefits you might even get as a stakeholder. All right, thank you.